Listeners, we ended up with a lot of feedback on this recording. Technology's great, but it doesn't always do what you want, does it? I cleaned most of it up, but apologies for the little bits of reverberation that remain. Happy Pride Month, and enjoy the show. Well, when it came to the left current that I'm talking about, of gay liberation, there was those who said that they just wanted it to be gay issues. We said, what is a gay issue? What is a transgender issue? What is a lesbian issue? Where are the boundaries around it? We're talking about a population of people who are dealing with racism and trying to find a place to live and a job, who are going to jail, who are being drafted, who are disabled, who have children, who have no education and no way to go to school. We're dealing with people who have no health care, who have been prisoners, who are sick and don't have insurance. Like, what's a gay issue? We said, wherever people are struggling against a common oppressor, that's where we got to be. And I don't mean like some quid pro quo, like, well, I'll support you, but first I have to know, I have to ask you a few questions. Like, how, how do you, where do you stand on this and where do you stand on that? No, that's not, that's not solidarity. That's a business agreement. I'm talking about the kind of solidarity that said when it's your life that's on the line, when you're struggling, look to the left or the right and I'll be there. I'll be there and I will fight for your rights because your life is as precious to me as my own. And I know that if you go down and I've let that happen, then I'll know they're going to come for me too and shame on me for not having understood that. That was queer author, activist, union organizer, and journalist Leslie Feinberg. Born in Kansas City, Feinberg was raised in a working-class Jewish home and realized at an early age that Z was what we would now call gender-fluid. Feinberg identified as both lesbian and trans and experienced decades of violence and rejection from peers, family, the police, and even some feminists because of a physical appearance and self that confounded gender norms. But Feinberg also found a home in blue-collar communities, where Z developed a worldview based in radical resistance to all injustice everywhere. Her journey is fictionalized in a classic 1993 novel, Stone Butch Blues. But Feinberg also represents an important convergence between queer liberation and communism. In the mid-1970s, Z attended a demonstration on behalf of dispossessed Palestinians and met members of the Workers' World Party, a revolutionary Marxist-Leninist-Communist faction. Membership in the WWP and then a life partnership with poet and essayist Minnie Bruce Pratt came to define the rest of Feinberg's life as an activist and citizen. A deeply gentle and compassionate soul, for 15 years, Feinberg wrote a column, Lavender and Red, for the Workers' World, the newspaper of the WWP, and in 1995, Z became managing editor of the paper. But her commitment to revolution never wavered. Shortly before Feinberg's death in November 2014, Leslie and I had a Facebook exchange in which I referred to her as a socialist. Z was horrified and corrected me instantly. Claire, Z responded, I am a revolutionary communist. Surprised? You shouldn't be. Communism is an old tradition among queer people, and if what remains of the Communist Party today were being honest, being queer is an old tradition among communists, too. 
In the first years after the Russian Revolution, sexual liberation was the rule, not the exception. But after Joseph Stalin became General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1922, things changed. And by the 1930s, the word went out around the world. Homosexuals undermined the principal foundation for the world revolution, the communist family. Gays and lesbians, the CPUSA proclaimed, were not just a security risk because they could be blackmailed, a position that would, ironically, also be adopted by the United States government in 1947. They were degenerates, the party said, on a par with drug addicts, alcoholics, and criminals. That edict lasted, enforced by the occasional investigation and purge of members, until the early 1980s. And yet, undeterred, radical gays and lesbians in the United States joined the party anyway, inspired by its global vision and its solidarity with working people, African Americans suffering under Jim Crow, immigrants, and the poor. And as long as they disguised their private lives and pretended to be heterosexual, sometimes through marriages of convenience, They got to plunge into the work that moved them most, hoping, perhaps, that one day their own liberation would be on the agenda, too. Not surprisingly, by the time queer liberation arrived in the 1960s, there were lots of activists who had cut their political teeth on Communist Party organizing. They jumped in to make their own revolution, one that we celebrate every June. This is why I asked Bettina Apthecker, a distinguished professor of feminist studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, to talk to us about her new book, Communists in Closets, Queering the History, 1930s to 1990s, out last fall from Rutledge Press. In it, Apthecker sketches the hidden history of queer communism, illustrated with capsule biographies of some of the party's most distinguished gay and lesbian activists, as well as her own decision to first hide her sexuality and then, inspired by finding the love of her life and supported by a robust feminist community, leave the party to live openly as a lesbian. Join Bettina Apthecker and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, a contributing editor at Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 25, Lavender and Red. Tina Apthecker, welcome to Why Now? Thank you so much, Claire. I'm so happy to be here. I enjoyed reading your book, Communists in Closets, so much. How did it come to be? Well, uh, there's there's various stories. There's always various origin stories about how things how things emerged. <laughs> but basically, um, I wrote a memoir that was published in 2006 that's uh, called uh, Intimate Politics, How I Grew Up, Read, Fought for Free Speech, and Became a Feminist Rebel. And uh, shortly after that book was published, I got a a message from Aaron Lechleiter, who teaches at the university in Boston. Uh, He was putting together a panel at the American Studies Association on homosexuality and culture and communists. And he asked me to be on it. And I said yes without thinking too much about it. 
I had no time to do any research, anything like that. And my dear beloved partner, Kate, said to me, um, well, use your life as the archive. So I wrote a, a paper for that. For that. It was called Keeping the Communist Party Straight, 1930s to 1970s, something like that. And it went over very well. And people were very encouraging. And so was Aaron. You know, he said, this is really fascinating. It's because it was being drawn from my own life as a closeted lesbian for all 19, almost the 19 years I was in the Communist Party. Then I was at NYU after that, doing a, a, a series of classes. And I gave a talk there on, on the same subject. And it turned out that all these people in the audience, that came, and it was packed. I was so surprised. All these people in the audience were not only queer, to one degree or another, but they'd all been around the communist left, the socialist left, you know, they'd all been. And after the, after I gave my little talk, they all started talking. And really all I had to do was stand at the podium and take notes. They were arguing with each other <laughs> as, you know, as we were wont to do. And, and then people came up to me afterwards and they said, you have to write a book. So this book really came to you. You didn't come to the book. No, it came to me. Yeah. Let's start with the ideas behind 20th century communism in the United States. And I think part of what our listeners will be interested in is when the Russian Revolution happens, it sort of pulls together all of these tendencies around women's freedom, sexual freedom. And that really becomes a key aspect of the left in the United States. But homosexuality is quickly taken off the table by the party. And could you tell us how that happens and why? Sure. I think that there's not one simple reason for it, but the party was founded in 19, I think it's 1921. But there had been, as you, as you just correctly said, there's all these different socialists and many immigrants who had come from Eastern Europe and from Russia and so forth, who had various socialist ideas, including my uh, one of my grandfathers who fought unsuccessfully in the 1905 Russian Revolution <laughs> and fled the country. So there's all these kinds of things. And the Bolshevik Revolution galvanized the formation of communist parties all over the world, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And in the first years of the revolution, in the Bolshevik Revolution, all of these restrictions on sexuality and many other restrictions also, like on reproductive rights for women and so forth, were all eliminated. And there was a great sense of freedom and liberation, really, that was taking place. And the idea of women's, it wasn't called women's liberation, but there was definitely embedded in that an idea of women's equality and, and this idea of sexual freedom. Uh, so, of course, in the, in the Western communist parties, which already had some tradition of anarchism and free sex. And, you know, you have Emma Goldman and you have uh, various people here. Uh, as a result of that, there is this sense of freedom. <clears throat> when Stalin came to power, he clamped everything down. There was a terrible repression. And all of this idea of sexual liberation was eliminated. Homosexuality was criminalized and so on. As a result of that, the same thing happened in the Western parties. Now, the Communist Party in the United States banned gays and lesbians from joining in 1938, right? 
And it called us degenerates. And it banned in that same resolution, which I quote in the book, prostitutes, drunkards, stool pigeons, you know, informants and so forth. So that's, we were all lumped together. And that's the start of the ban. And it affected all, all the Socialist Party, the Socialist Workers Party. It affected everybody. And so there was this great uh, homophobic prejudice. Well, and what's interesting about this, Bettina, of course, is that the United States as a liberal democracy is also clamping down on homosexuality. There are laws passed against cross-dressing. There are laws passed that equate homosexuals with sex workers. Psychology is playing a big role in stigmatizing homosexuality. Why was it in the Communist Party's interest to do this? when it could have distinguished itself from the American system of government by trying to retain sexual freedom? It's really a tragic history. It's really so unfortunate and so unnecessary. And the party, the Communist Party, had enough baggage (laughs) that it didn't really need to add this to it, but it did in this really terrible homophobic way. First, I just think it's bigotry. There was just bigotry because it, as you just correctly said, it permeated the entire culture. Now, this is important too, because I've done other research on this. In the 19th century, there was more tolerance for certain kinds of uh, sexuality. And it shifts very much uh, around the time of the ascendancy of Freudian psychoanalysis and Freudian ideas. And so there's a big shift that takes place as well. That's around the turn of the century and a little bit later. So that's also happening at the same time. But I think the party, first of all, people were just homophobic. There's just no other way to describe it. They were prejudicial and and bigoted. But I think the other thing that the party began to argue was that gay and lesbian people could be blackmailed as a consequence because it was so prohibited in general in the culture, as you just uh, acknowledged. And then they could become informants for the FBI and so forth. So that was sort of one of the reasons that was given. And as you say in the book, that's ironic because at the same time, the American government is looking for homosexuals in its rank because they could be blackmailed by communists. So it's it's this kind of spy versus spy mad magazine scenario here. It's totally crazy. It It really is. It's like nuts. By the 1950s, the government, the United States government, was not only persecuting communists, which is we all think of as the McCarthy period, and exactly the same time was the so-called Lavender Scare, where they were persecuting gays and lesbians and firing them by the scores from suspected and whether they were and so forth, from the State Department, from various government jobs and so forth. And as you say, an inversion of what the Communist Party was saying. That, uh, that they could become spies for the Soviet Union. And at the same time, the Communist Party is really one of the few organizations in the early 20th century that is mostly dominated by whites, but supporting black civil rights. So it's not as if the Communist Party does not have an important critique of civil rights in the United States, and yet they push gays and lesbians into a corner and say, no, those are degenerates. They don't have rights. They don't have rights. That's right. That's exactly right. And the party played a very, very important role in anti-racist, anti-lynching struggles 
in the South in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s under very dangerous conditions. Um, and and uh, re- they registered various communists had gone down, you know, to the South, many of them black, others white. They had registered um, uh, people to vote. They, they also helped organize something called the anti-peonage campaign. Uh, peonage was a system where a person could be, a black person would be arrested, you know, like in a, well, so anywhere, and charged with vagrancy, let's say, or something like that. But then basically forced into a, a new form of slavery. Uh, and women were forced into prostitution. And uh, there was an anti-peonage campaign, and communists would go down with money, and they would meet the person. My dad, for example, went down, told me about going down into the South and meeting a woman, I think it was Louisiana, who was being forced into prostitution. And he pretended to be a client, you know, so they went into a, a back room and he gave her money uh, so that she could take a bus and get out of town. And, and then he told her safe house to go, you know, he had the address for the next safe house to go and so on, so she could escape. Yeah. But I want to remind our listeners, of course, that your father was the historian Herbert Apthecker, who was one of the first people in the United States, other than W.E.B. Du Bois and Carter Woodson and a couple of other people, to write and popularize and teach the history of African-Americans. So he was both an activist and a scholar, as were many of the people that you write about in your book. And I want to start by asking you, why you decided to write it as a series of biographical sketches. I chose the form because I thought that it would get some kind of depth into the lives of actual people who I was researching. And I was finding such rich material in the archives. And some of the biographies, as you know, are shorter. There's an introductory section and there's a whole series of shorter biographies. And then there's chapters, four chapters, where there's much greater depth of biographies of, of major figures that I chose. I think it's engaging. I think people like to know stories about people's lives. And also, it allowed me to talk about, for example, one person, Betty Millard, okay, who was an activist, and we can talk about her more. But one of the things it did is it allowed me to talk about the nervous breakdown that she had as a consequence, not only of being closeted as queer for so many years, but also as a result of the revelations about the crimes that Stalin had committed, you see. So that affected these queer communists also, who had devoted their lives to trying to make a better world for peace and for civil rights and anti-racist struggles against colonialism and imperialism and so forth. They'd done some great work, and at the same time, they felt terribly betrayed. Well, and they also had to carry around the sense of fear with them because the party would expel them if they knew that they were homosexual. Listeners, if you've read Vivian Gornick's book about the Communist Party, that was a heartbreaking experience that people would go to great lengths to avoid. I think you're talking about the romance of American communism. Yes, exactly. Wonderful book. And it influenced me a lot. And so there are these kind of conflicting love affairs. There's a love affair with the party and the idea of revolution and the idea of a better society. And then there's this other love affair that creeps in 
which is grad people gradually realizing that they're not heterosexual. They can't form communist families the way the party wants them to. So how do some of your characters handle that problem? The most basic way is, of course, secrecy. They mask who they are in various ways. Now, it's a little more complicated. We should point out it's a little more complicated than this dichotomy this way, because the party also had an attitude of don't ask, don't tell. So, for example, Anna Rochester and Grace Hutchins, who were together for, I don't know, 50 some odd years, okay, they were in the Communist Party. They were both in the Communist Party. Anna was a historian, primarily. She wrote quite a number of pamphlets and books and so forth, like on the populist movement, on the anti-slavery movement. She was a very prolific writer. And Grace was primarily an economist. But together, they founded something called the Labor Research Associates. And this was an organization that was supplying basic economic information to trade unions. It, was, it still exists. It's, it was a very vital organization. Now, everybody around them knew that they were a couple because they were living together. I mean, it wasn't a secret, but they never said anything about it. They never acknowledged it, right? There's one scene in my book where Betty Millard is having dinner with them. There was a man at dinner also. And after dinner, Anna Rochester and the man went into the living room to talk and smoke cigars or whatever they did. And and Betty stayed with Grace in the kitchen. And after about half hour, she says, or an hour or something, Grace says to her, shall we join the gentleman? That's great. <laughs> see, so also, this gets back to this point about biographies. You see, it, it allowed me to tell these kinds of stories. But that tells you something. Like, and Betty, of course, is queer, and they know everybody knows, but then nobody says. You see, like that. And and of course, everybody's also dealing with the with the homophobia and the culture. So that's the other factor that everybody is is is, is struggling with. Right. And of course, this is going on inside the party and outside the party. I mean, I'm old enough to remember having gone to a girl's private school that there were all kinds of couples teaching at the school who had met at Bryn Mawr and the parents would say, how lovely that they can share expenses by living together. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so there was this sort of lie that, that everybody agreed on. But it didn't always work, now did it? I mean, some people were discovered and some people were expelled. So can you tell us a couple stories about that? In the 50s, in this period of very intense repression that's going on, and everybody is struggling with that, the party sent, I, I know of one case specifically where I can talk about it because the woman described it to me. <clears throat> There's a, a, a member of the Communist Party that I knew very well in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, she described to me being instructed by the Communist Party. This was in the 70s that she's telling me about this. Uh, that in the, in the early 50s, she was instructed to go meet with various women in the Communist Party and ask them directly if they'd ever had a sexual liaison with another woman. And if they acknowledged that they had, they were asked to leave. And if they didn't leave voluntarily, they were expelled. Now, this was a terrible thing to do to people in a period of such awful repression, uh, political repression. I mean, you can imagine the, the impact that that would have had um, on, uh, <clears throat> on families, on women, on, on, the, on the situation. Uh, and because the party also provided friendships, solidarity, um, uh, comradeship, of course. And, and, and so 
to have that kind of wrenching experience. And then I found examples of people who were not admitted into the Communist Party because they were gay. One I can talk about, I can actually say his name is Eric Gordon, who now writes for the People's World, which is the Communist Party newspaper published in Los Angeles. And Eric was knocking on the door of the Communist Party for probably 25, 30 years, and he couldn't get in. <laughs> and, and he just describes the incredible homophobia that would not admit, and he would beg. He wrote letters. He talked to people to, to end this ban, that this ban was, was nuts. And he also described the party doing crazy things, I think really crazy things. Like, for example, there was the inauguration of the first black mayor in New York, David Dinkins. And the gay, the gay chorus sang at his inauguration. Okay, And Eric was part of that chorus. When the Communist Party press reported on the inauguration, they talked about all the speakers, all the different people that were there. They never mentioned that he raised the gay chorus. That's how it was, you see. It was devastating to gay, to gay and lesbian people in the party. On the flip side, being in the party actually had a huge effect on people who began to emerge as organizers and activists in the gay liberation movement. Okay, so one of the people I talk about in the book is Eleanor Flexner. And she was um, in a queer relationship. She would have called it a Boston marriage. That was a term that was used in the late 19th century with a woman named Helen Tatum. And they were together for like 30 years. Okay. And Eleanor uh, lived um, in, in New York and uh, she came from a prominent family. Her father was a very famous educator and so on. And uh, she started researching the history of women's suffrage and she had taken classes at the Jefferson School with my father, where I found her notebook with his notes about black, about black resistance and black, you know, black experience and so forth. That informed a great deal about, ended up informing a great deal about her book. So this is a one-volume history that she wrote called Century of Struggle, published just before the launch, about 10 years before the launch of the Women's Liberation Movement. Okay, in the late 60s. So this is published in 1959. And it's what we today would call an intersectional history. It's got race, it's got class, it's got, you know, sexual, gender, not sexuality, but gender. And she was completely closeted, right, as a lesbian. But that's what she wrote. And she was influenced by Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was a very prominent member of the Communist Party, by another woman named Marion Backrack, who was a journalist who most people don't know about and who I think may have been queer, but I couldn't demonstrate it for sure. And, um, and Claudia Jones, who was a great black uh, Trinidadian activist in the Communist Party. And so that's how she wrote that book. And it became a very essential um, tool, educational and so forth for the beginning of the women's liberation movement. That's one example. Another is um, a lot of the people that were in the first formation of the Gay Liberation Front were experienced organizers uh, who came into the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, and so forth, many of whom had been in and around the Communist Party. And, and, and they helped to found the Gay Liberation Front. Uh, but they had to do it in a very, you say, surreptitious way because they were not out. 
And then another fellow named Morty Manford, who founded the gay was one of the founders of the Gay Activist Alliance, actually wrote to the Communist Party and asked um, them to send a speaker to a rally they were holding to try to get support for legislation in the New York City Council to end discrimination against gays and lesbians. Now, Morty came, his mother was Jean Manford, who founded PFLAG. Right. And she helped to found that. That's Jean. She's a remarkable woman. And she'd been an organizer with the teachers union. Now, I don't know whether she was in the Communist Party or not, but it occurred to me that why would Morty think about inviting the Communist Party unless as a boy he grew up, right, knowing people and thought that it was logical that they would support something like this. Of course, they didn't even respond to his letter. But it's, that that's part of the history of this also. That um, And then, of course, I have to say this Harry Hay, right, who founded the first gay civil rights organization in the United States. It's called the Mattachine Society. And he was a very prominent member of the Communist Party. And all the formulations that he did in his early radical understanding of gay oppression came out of his understanding of uh, oppression as it was defined in the Communist Party. Well, and Harry Hay, of course, used a tactic that was fairly common in the CP and elsewhere to mask his homosexuality and perhaps dissuade himself from being a homosexual, which is he got married. He went to a psychiatrist who said, well, what you really need to do is have sex with a woman and then you'll be okay. But it had to be a masculine-like woman, yeah. Yes, a masculine woman. With that, I'd like to turn to your own history in the party, Bettina, because you were a member for decades. You struggled with this kind of repression. And yet you also say, for example, that your parents treated you very gently, that you ran into people who probably knew and were kind to you. So can you talk a little bit about all of the different experiences of being communist and coming out as a lesbian? Yes. So thank you, Claire. So I was in the Communist Party for 19 years, from 1962 to 1981. Okay. So those are the years when I was was very active in many, many social justice movements, the free speech movement, the defense of Angela Davis, and so on. So very active in that time period, and very, very closeted, and married. And as soon as I was married to a man, I had my first real lesbian affair. This is just like so typical. This is such a stereotype. I have to say, there's nothing original about me. I think this is true for many, many, many people. But I was deeply closeted and I was hiding from my husband, the FBI, because I was under constant surveillance and had been for decades. And I mean, since I was a child, I've been under surveillance. So I was hiding from the FBI and I was hiding from the Communist Party. So it was very stressful uh, to be to be hiding in this kind of way. Now, when I finally broke out of all of this, which was in the mid to late 70s is what happened. And so it's late, you see. It's actually late in terms of the gay liberation movement. I've been going for quite a while already. But I was I was already claiming feminism, feminist ideas. I was already claiming the women's liberation movement. I was getting involved in it. Angela Davis helped me a great deal with that, with her writing and teaching me various things, uh, which I think I describe in this book. But when when that when that happened, I knew there was a connection between women's liberation 
and gay liberation. And I was so closeted and I was so torn, you know, like what to do. Oh my gosh. You know, like finding Adrian Mitch's poetry, you know, and thinking it was some kind of underground pamphlet or something uh, with her love poems, you know, the wonderful, very explicit love poems about women. But what really helped me were my students. I was teaching at San Jose State and there was a whole group of lesbian women there. They were wonderful to me. And they really, brought, they helped me to come out. And so it's around between 76 and 79. And I separated from my husband in 78. So, and we had two children. So it was complicated, you know, to do something like that. But that's when everything shifted for me. And you left your husband and then subsequently you left the party too. Did you feel that was necessary in order to go on with your life? Yes. So here's what, here's what happened. The party had asked me to write a book about women's history because they didn't have anything. The last thing they had published on women's history was August Babel. Those that are familiar with that know that that's, you know, the late 19th century. So I wrote a book called Woman's Legacy, Essays on Race, Sex, and Class in American History, which was based a lot on my research in Black women's history and the history of suffrage and and so on and radical movements. And I, I wrote it. And I sent it to International Publishers, which is the Communist Party's publishing house. And I was told that it looked good, you know, no problem. But it had to be read by people in the National Party office because this is the official publishing house. So it was read there. And then all of a sudden, there was problems. Now, this is coinciding, you see, with as I'm coming out as a lesbian. It's the same time period because I met Kate in 1979. And that's about the time that I was submitting the manuscript when I was done with it. So this is 79, 1980. And no matter what changes or adjustments I tried to make in the manuscript, because they said it was too feminist. So I wasn't willing to change a lot of things, but I was willing to change some things. And then what happened was the manuscript was returned to me. It had been copy edited, and then it was returned to me without so much as a letter. That was it. And when I tried to call them, nobody would talk to me. And Kate was right. She said to me that the party will not publish a lesbian. No matter what you do, they will not publish a lesbian. And so it became untenable for me to remain in the Communist Party. It's just untenable. And so I left. Now, in the Bay Area, I just want to say this, in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I was living, my comrades here were not so homophobic. And they were very kind to me. And there wasn't that kind of vicious prejudice and bigotry and and so it really wasn't about them. It was about the national office and the and the party's line on in gays and lesbians. So you, you didn't lose your networks. You didn't lose your friends. Yeah, I, I won't go on too much, but you do. Because once you leave the party, so nobody was casting aspersions on me, but then nobody was calling me either. Right. That sounds very sad. And the only thing that kind of cheers me up about it is that you were embarking on a new love affair that has lasted for the rest of your life. So you you got something in return. Not my life. (laughs) So Bettina, let me ask you, because I think one of the things this book really shows is how much communism motivated people to work for creative forms of change and to promote useful dissent. Angela Davis, who we mentioned in the book, 
has become a leading voice on decarceration, trying to get rid of prisons, if my listeners don't know that word. So there are communists who are sort of moving all of these crucial social issues. In what ways would you say you're still a communist in your commitments? Well, I would say probably wouldn't use the word anymore because it's, it's, too, it's too conflicted and there's too many crimes that have been committed in its name. But I would certainly say I'm still deeply committed to anti-racist uh, struggles and uh, anti-colonialist and uh, what, what Angela calls prison abolition. In other words, really fundamental changes, not only in the prison system, but also in the policing system and to eradicate impoverishment. And, and I haven't even mentioned immigration, the horror at the southern border. And I live in California, right? So mm-hmm. I'm very aware of the immigration situation at our southern border, which is absolutely horrific and absolutely such a violation of every, every imaginable human rights ideas, you know. So all of those are issues with which I would identify and and many of them are not antagonistic at all to what I would imagine is many. Oh, and also, I have to say, sorry, trade union organizing that's going on now. I've been meeting with someone, a young guy who's involved in trying to organize a, a shop at Amazon. And I've been talking to him and helping, you know. So that side, I'm very much involved in all of those sorts of things. Yeah. So the moral commitments and the ethical commitments are still there under another name. Yeah. No name. <laughs> no name. Okay. Well, no name leftism. <laughs> so, Tina, this is my final question. Other than Gay Pride Month, or I guess we call it Pride Month because there are so many queer people that are under under our umbrella, why should our listeners read this book now? I think it would be very helpful for people on a number of a number of ways, whether or not you're queer. I think if you're not queer, but you're part of the left. Uh, or you think of yourself as part of the left, this is a history that you ought to know that I think would be helpful for you to know uh, because these are people that contributed so much to the liberation movements of the 20th century, the anti-fascist movements of the 20th century, the Popular Front, for example, and civil rights. And among my people is Lorraine Hansberry, who's one of the great playwrights of the 20th century who died prematurely, of course, whose play is now on Broadway. Her place, the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window, has just opened on Broadway to rave reviews. So if you want to know something about what the left has done, what communists have done, I think this is a good, a good history. And uh, it helps you. It helps you to understand something about the politics of the United States and the McCarthy period and the Popular Front period and so forth. And, and so I, I want to encourage people on the left but then, see, I'm trying to also encourage queer people to read this, to become familiar with our history, with this part of our history, because it's very informative, I think, of how we have emerged into the gay liberation period that we're in, even though we're also in a period of furious backlash at the same time. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Why Now on your favorite podcast platform. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. 
Go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes, to listen to more episodes, or to leave a comment. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. Share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. And follow me on Twitter at Tenured Radical, that's capital T, capital R, or at my website, clairepotter.com. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. That's all for now. See you next time. Mm-hmm.